Blog Talk Radio. Psalm 82, a psalm of Asaph. God standeth in the congregation of the mighty. He judgeth among the gods. How long will ye judge unjustly and accept the persons of the wicked? Selah. Defend the poor and fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and needy. Deliver the poor and needy. Rid them out of the hand of the wicked. They know not, neither will they understand. They walk on in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are out of course. I have said, Ye are gods, and all of you are children of the Most High. But ye shall die like men, and fall like one of the princes. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for thou shalt inherit all nations. Well, hello everyone. This is Kennard Brown again. I am your host for the Merciful Servants of God Biblical Instructional Program. As I stated, I have a new format for these uh, weekly Bible studies. We're going to go by what many Jews go by uh, throughout the United States and around the world. And as I explained last week, we're only doing what uh, Yeshua did, or Jesus, that's his Hebrew name, Yeshua, or Yahshua, for for other people who want to to name him Yahshua. Um, And again, let's turn to John. Chapter 4, beginning in verse 21, Jesus says to her, Woman, believe me, the hour comes when you shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. Verse 22, you worship, you know not what, or you don't know what you're worshiping. We know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. And then in Romans chapter 3, Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. What advantage then has the Jew? Or what profit is there of the circumcision? Uh, In most cases when the word circumcision is is written in uh, the New Testament or the Apostolic Scriptures or the Brit Chadashah, Renewed Covenant, it means a Jew or born a Jew. Verse 2. Much every way chiefly because them to them were committed the oracles or words of God. For what if some did not believe? In other words, what if some did not believe that Yeshua is the Messiah? Shall their unbelief make faith of God without effect? God forbid. Yes, let God be true, but every man a liar, as it is written, that you might be justified in your sayings and might overcome them when you are judged. So just because the Jews don't understand fully that Yeshua is the Messiah does not mean they still don't, do not have an advantage. So we must understand that and uh, we must adhere to that. And then in Matthew chapter 23, in verse 1, Then spoke Jesus to the multitude and to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat, or they're supposed to sit in Moses' seat. Verse 3, All therefore whatsoever they bid you observe, observe and do, but do not but do not you after their works, for they say and do not. In other words, if, if they tell you to do something, and, and it's something that Moses would tell you, 
then do it. But if they tell you something and they're not sitting in Moses' seat or they're not doing it the way Moses would do it, then you don't obey them. That's that's exactly what that's talking about because he's talking about their hypocrisy here in, in the next few verses. And so you shouldn't, if they tell you to do something based on the law of Moses and you don't do it, then of course you don't do it. It's plain and simple as that. That's just as basic common sense. All right, so in other words, God has not forgotten the Jews, and neither should we. For those who claim to be Christians, uh, I don't know if you realize this or not, but you are believing in a Jewish person. Uh, Yeshua is a Jew. <laughs> uh, the disciples that he taught, the 12 that are going to be ruling with him, and the kingdom over uh, each tribe of Israel, let me, let me prove that to you here, let me find that scripture, uh, will also are all Jews. So the Jews are in the picture, and we need to, to understand that, and they will be the leaders and rulers in, in God's kingdom. With the top Jew who ever lived, uh, Yeshua Messiah, on, on, on top of all of us. So we, we need to understand that, and uh, we, sure, the Jews don't, a lot of them don't understand that Yeshua is the Messiah. Does that mean that that does not mean that they eventually won't come to their senses because they will. They will. So um, the Bible predicts that in Romans chapter 11. And, and we need to understand the, um, the, uh, very, the, the, the seriousness of that because it's very important to understand. I'm still trying to find this scripture here. Let me see if I can find it. Uh fact that he told them that they would be ruling, each ruling over one of the tribes of Israel in the kingdom. Here we go. Uh, Luke chapter 22, verse 30. Luke chapter 22, verse 30. And verse 28 of Luke chapter 22, verse 28. You are they which have continued with me in my temptations or trials or problems. Uh, even Yeshua, as perfect as he was, had problems. So what makes us think we're not going to have problems? But anyway, verse 29, and I appoint to you a kingdom as my Father has appointed to me. So just like the Father appointed the kingdom to Yeshua, he's going to appoint us a kingdom. Verse 30, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So he's telling him that his his, his uh, fellow disciples uh, will be judging and ruling over the twelve tribes of Israel. Incredibly. That's, that's what he states here. And this, this is um, scripture and, and this is something to, not to be doubted. And if he states that they will be ruling with him, they will be ruling with him. Okay, so I just wanted to read that to you. Now, there is some uh, information that I have to, I told you from time to time I may come up with something right before I get into the Torah readings. We're going to look at uh, the death of Sarah and then um, Abraham negotiating and also uh, Isaac, uh, uh, he 
was able to get married to Rebecca. Pretty interesting story. Then we're going to look at King Solomon, him being assigned to be king by his father. And then we're going to look at another scripture in Corinthians about the resurrection or the the rapture. Um, I want to read this actual article that I got off of Infowars.com because I need to read and need to inform people who do listen to me about what's going on, what's really going on in this economy and in the world. Um, I implore you and I, I encourage you to go to Infowars.com. It's www.infowars.com. That's www.info, I as an it, N as in Nancy, F as in Frank, O as in Orioles, W as in water, A, R, S, dot com. Alex Jones does a very good job of uh, providing you information that the media, which is controlled by the Council of Foreign Relations and other of the most powerful people in the world monetarily, um, they don't want to tell you the truth. They don't want the media, uh, they don't want the, the general public to panic because if they do, then there will be real change uh, for the better, and they don't want that. They want to control people. So anyway, let me read uh, the highlights to this article. I'm not going to read everything, but... Uh, I'm going to read enough for you to get the picture here. Uh, this article is, the author's name is Neil Reynolds, and it's from the Globe and Mail, October 29th, 2010. It says, Boston University economist, economist rather, Lawrence Kutlifkoff, Kutlifkoff, boy, if there's ever a dictionary with last names, I'd like to know of it. Kutlifkoff says, U.S. government debt is not, $13.5 trillion, which is 60% of current gross domestic product, which is the total sum of all goods and services produced uh, in a country. But anyway, uh, which is 60% of current gross domestic product, as global investors and American taxpayers think, but rather 14-fold higher, $200 trillion, $200 trillion, that's 840% of current GDP. So let's get real, Professor Kotlovkov says the U.S. is bankrupt, and that's what it is, ladies and gentlemen. It is bankrupt. <laughs> Writing in the September issue of Finance and Development, a journal of the International Monetary Fund, Professor Kotlovkov says that the, Inter the International Monetary Fund, or the IMF, the acronym for that, itself has quietly confirmed that the U.S. is in terrible fiscal trouble, far worse far worse than the Washington-based lender of last resort has previously acknowledged. The U.S. fiscal gap is huge, the IMF asserted in a June report. Closing the fiscal gap requires a permanent annual fiscal adjustment equal to about 14% of U.S. GDP. This sum is equal to all current U.S. federal taxes combined. The consequences of the IMF's fiscal fix, a doubling of federal taxes in perpetuity, would be appalling and possibly worse than appalling. So, you know, ladies and gentlemen, don't believe CNN, Fox, NBC, CNBC, ABC. Don't believe your news when they tell you that we are recovering. We're not recovering, folks. We're we're getting in a far worse situation than we ever have been in the history of the United States. So don't listen to that. Listen to what I'm telling you. Listen to what other people are telling you. Go to Gerald Salente's website. Type in Gerald Salente, Google. He's one of the world's greatest 
a trend forecast, and he's been right about close to almost 100% in most of the things that he forecasts. And all he does, he says he he says current uh, current history produces future trends. What's going on now, you can use that to pretty much understand what's going to happen in the future. So, and he's really going by, let me read this scripture to you in Ecclesiastes. A scripture just popped in my mind. Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes uh, chapter 1. Verse 9, this is what Salente, whether he realizes it or not, is going by. Uh, verse 9, the thing that has been, it is that which shall be, and that which is done is that which shall be done, and there is no new, no new thing under the sun. So that's, that's the philosophy that he is following from one of the world's uh, most wise people. As God stated, uh, he was the most wisest person outside of, of course, Yeshua Messiah himself, Jesus Christ. So, States right here, America's um, a Professor Kotlifkov says the IMF is saying that to close this fiscal gap by taxation, we require an immediate and permanent doubling of all our personal income taxes, our corporate taxes, and all other federal taxes. No way on earth we can afford that, ladies and gentlemen. America's fiscal gap is enormous, so massive that closing it appears impossible without immediate and radical reforms to its health care tax and social security systems as well as military and other discretionary spending cuts and you know ladies and gentlemen of course uh, again I, i'm just trying to to emphasize the tremendous obstacle that we have as a nation to overcome this tremendous uh, financial hurdle that we have and it, it, it's just getting to a point now where we have to really collectively cry out to God to save us from ourselves economically. And, you know, fiscal is, is referring to the uh, public debt. Now, he cites earlier calculations by the Congressional Budget Office, CBO, that conducted that the United States would need to increase tax revenue by 12 percentage points of GDP, GDP to bring revenue into line with spending commitments. But the CBO calculations assume that the growth of government programs, including Medicaid, or Medicare, rather, would be cut by one-third in the short term and by two-thirds in the long term. This assumption, Professor Kutlukov notes, is politically implausible, if not politically impossible. One way or another, the fiscal gap must be closed. If not, the country's spending will forever exceed its revenue growth. Let me underscore this or highlight this. If not, the country's spending will forever exceed is revenue growth, and no one's real debt can increase faster than its real income forever. Professor Kutlikoff uses fiscal gap, not the accumulation of deficits, to define public debt. As I stated earlier, what's what fiscal is referring to. The fiscal gap is the difference between a government's projected revenue expressed in today's dollar value and its projected spending also expressed in today's dollar value. By this measure, the United States is in worse shape than Greece. Okay, so you know this this is this is ridiculous, and Professor Kutlikoff is a, a credible person uh, in, in regards to this. Uh, he's a noted economist. 
He is um, a research associate at the U.S. National Bureau of Economic Research. He is a former senior economist with then-President Ronald Reagan's Council of Economic Advisors, or economists, rather. He is a noted economist, and he's a former senior economist with the then-President Ronald Reagan's Council of Economic Advisors. He has served as a consultant with governments around the world. He is an author or co-author of 14 books. Uh, Jimmy Stewart is Dead. <laughs> Interesting, anyway. 2010, his, recent, well, his most recent book explains the recommendations for reform. So anyway, that, that's the, the picture of uh, our situation. I don't have to read the rest of the article. If you want to read it, go to Infowars.com, or you can type in Google, the Google search engine, the scary actual U.S. government debt, which hardly, well, I don't know of any, pop, uh, especially from the Democrats and the Republicans, that even wanted to address this issue because it's something that uh, no one really wants to address, uh, the truth seems like people don't want to know the truth about their situation these days. And, but that's the way it is. And this is just following along with, with Bible prophecy, what, what it predicts not only for this country, but for the entire world. Again, let's turn to uh, Revelation chapter 6. Revelation chapter 6. And this is just following along with Bible prophecy again. Uh Revelation chapter 6, and we're, we're talking about the third seal, which has been initiated, really. Don't know the full extent of it yet, but according to these verses, it's going to get pretty bad as far as economic instability worldwide. Revelation chapter 6, verse 5, And when he had opened the third seal, I heard the third beast say, Come and see, and I beheld and lo, a black horse, and he that sat on him had a pair of balances in his hand, of course, symbolizing you know scales, symbolizes economy. And I heard, verse 6, And I heard a voice in the midst of the four beasts say, A measure of wheat for a penny, and three measures of barley for a penny, and see you hurt not the oil and the wine. And indicates inflation. Economic problems, and we're having that. And it's only getting worse, ladies and gentlemen. It's only getting worse. So don't believe the politicians. Don't believe these so-called economists that... Um, claim to know everything there is about the economy and so forth. Believe your common sense. If you understand addition and subtraction, you should be able to understand the situation we're in. We're $200 trillion in debt, ladies and gentlemen. Our GDP is $14 trillion. That's not enough money to pay back on the $200 trillion. Even a um, first or second grader that knows how to add and subtract can understand that. Okay, so let, let's let's stop the foolishness here and, and let's use the brains that God has given us to, to reasonably understand our situation. So we must tighten our belts and more than that, we must all get close to the true God and obey his commandments. And that means all of them, not the ones we want to pick and choose and the ones that are convenient for us to obey. All right, so let's uh, review uh, this week's uh, Torah portion in the remaining 40 minutes that I have here. Uh, let's turn to Genesis uh, chapter 23. Genesis uh, chapter 23. And this is talking about the death of Sarah. And I'm going to go refer to other uh, scriptures in the uh, Tanakh or Old Testament or New Testament when necessary. And I, I want to focus on Sarah 
uh, verse 1, it says, And Sarah was a hundred and seven and twenty years old, and these were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died in the Ker Arba, the same as Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham came to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. All right, and let's understand why Abraham weeped and mourned for her, because Sarah is considered a great woman. And there's some, some things said about her by Peter. Let's see if I can find the, the scripture where he stated some things about her that women of today especially <laughs> need to follow and why Abraham mourned for her and, and respected her. See if I can find this here. Let's see. Okay. This is in the context of Sarah. And um this is in first Peter three, verse one. I'm going to read this in the complete Jewish Bible version for clarity's sake. First uh, Peter chapter three verse one. In the same way, wives submit to your husbands, so that even if some of them do not believe the word, they will be won over by your conduct, without your saying anything. And that's something that definitely women can uh, <laughs> make some improvements on men too. But in this context, it's talking about women. Uh, Verse 2 of First Peter chapter 3, as they see your respectful and pure behavior. It's not so much what you say as what you do. And that is the true teaching of, of the Bible in regards to righteousness is what you do. It's not so much what you say. Verse 3, your beauty should not consist in external such as fancy hairstyles, gold jewelry, or what you wear. So women, and sure, there's nothing wrong with jewelry and all that and clothes, but that's not what you should be focusing on. That's what Peter's telling you here. Verse 4. Rather, let it be the inner character, the inner character of your heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit. A godly woman should have a gentle and quiet spirit. She shouldn't be loud mouth going, ah, 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 you know, it should, it should be a gentle and quiet spirit. In God's sight, this is of great value, not the clothes and the earrings and so forth. Verse 5. This is how the holy women, now here, here we're getting to this uh, pointing to Sarah here, verse 5. This is how the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to adorn themselves. They didn't adore themselves by, they didn't focus so much on adorning themselves by, with clothes and jewelry. They did it by their behavior, their inner character, their gentle and quiet spirit. So in verse 5, this is how the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to adorn themselves and submit to their husbands. Verse 6, now, Sarah. The way Sarah obeyed Abraham, honoring him as her lord or master, her boss, just like many of you women who are listening to me have bosses at work. That's the way you need to respect your husband. You are her daughters. If, that's a big if here, if, you do what is right and do not succumb to fear. Okay? So you have to do what is right and don't and trust God and don't think that and have confidence in God 
and, and have confidence in your husband's ability. Now, if you know he's going off track, pray to God about it. Okay, and don't obey him, of course, if he's telling you some things that are unreasonable. Like if he go tell you to, to go kill someone, of course you're not going to do that. If he tells you to sin, don't do it. All right, that's common sense. Verse 7, and it says, You husbands, likewise, conduct your married lives with understanding. Although your wife may be the weaker physically, she certainly ain't mentally, that's for sure, but she's weaker physically, of course. You should respect her as a fellow heir of the gift of life. If you don't, your prayers will be blocked. So any husband that doesn't respect his wife, like obviously Abraham respected Sarah, whenever you pray, God's not going to listen to you. But women, that can work the other way around. If, you, if you're if not treating your husband with respect, and and, and literally, I mean, just sp- uh, figuratively spitting at him, uh, when he tells you to do something and you don't do it, that's like spitting in your, in your, in, in, uh, your husband's face, basically. God's not going to answer your prayers either. Okay, so so uh, God's not going to answer any wicked person's prayers if that person continues in wickedness. So in, in verse 8, it's the summation of all this. Finally, all of you, be one in mind and feeling. Love as brothers and be compassionate and humble-minded. Okay? So I just wanted to point that out. That's the reason why Abraham was in mourning for Sarah. He really loved her, and I can understand why, because she really respected him as a man and gave him respect. And we don't find that too often in today's society. We really don't. So anyway, verse 3, And Abraham, back in Genesis chapter 3, And Abraham stood up from before his dead and spoke to the sons of Heth, saying, I am a stranger and a sojourner with you. Give me a possession of a burying place with you that I may bury my dead out of my sight. And the children of Heth answered Abraham, saying to him, Here is my Lord, you are a mighty prince among us, and the choice of our sepulchres bury your dead. None of us shall withhold from you this sepulchre, but you may bury your dead. And Abraham stood up and bowed himself to the people of the land, even to the children of Heth, and he communed with them, saying, if it be your mind that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat me to Ephron, the son of Zohar, that he may give me the cave of Mappalah, which he has, which is in the end of the field, for as much money as it is worth, he shall give it me for a possession of a burying place among you. So, you know, Abraham knew that he was going to have to pay for this. You know, there's really nothing for free these days other than uh, the truth of God is free. And I guess the the air that we breathe is free as well. Verse 10, and Ephraim, well, the truth of God should be free, but that's a, well, I, I do actually have a Bible study on that. Should ministers charge for their literature? And when I explain a, a, a shocker, probably, that ministers should, in addition to having a ministry like myself, they should have a, a little part time job or a full time job just in case uh, their believers don't support them or they want to stop supporting because they say something that's true in the Bible and yet they don't believe it, so they stop giving them money. See, when you look at the example of Paul, Paul had a job. He worked out jobs now and then. He rented out his house. That's what it states at the end of Acts. He rented out a house. So obviously he must have had money to pay for it. And he was a tent maker. That was one of his professions. So and then, of course, we know that Yeshua was a carpenter, and he, told, and he stated that his father works. So if the Father works, ladies and gentlemen, we have to work because Ephesians 5 verse 1 states that we must imitate the Father. Now, 
as I stated in that Bible study, should ministers uh, charge for the literature, rabbis had worldly occupations in addition to the occupation of being a rabbi or a Torah teacher or a minister uh, in the first century. And that's something that we should follow and emulate today. So anyway, back to uh, the Torah portion here. How many minutes I have left here? Uh, 31 minutes. Okay, Genesis chapter 23 and verse 10. And Ephraim dwelt among the children of Heath, and Ephraim the Hittite answered Abraham in the audience of the children of Heath, even of all that went in at the gate of the city, saying, Nay, my lord, hear me. The field give I you, and the cave that is therein I give it you, and in the presence of the sons of my people give it I of the sons of my people, give I it you. Bury your dead. And Abraham bowed down himself before the people of the land, and he spoke to Ephraim in the audience of the people of the land, saying, But if you will give it, I pray you, hear me, I will give you money for the field. So he, again, he understands, look, there's got to be something to this. You know, uh, you, you know, he has to pay. It would be only right to pay for something like this. Um I will give you money for the field, take it of me, and I will bury my dead there. And then Ephraim answered Abraham, saying to him, My Lord, hearken to me, the land is worth 400 shekels. Now he's getting to the <laughs> He's telling him how much it's worth. He says, The land is worth 400 shekels of silver. What is that between me and you? Bury therefore your dead. And Abraham hearkened to Ephraim, and Abraham weighed to Ephraim the silver, which he had named many audience of the sons of Heth, 400 shekels of silver current money with the merchant and the field of Ephraim, which was in Mapalot, which was before Mamre, the field and the cave, which was there, and all the trees that were in the field that were in the borders around about were made sure. To Abraham for a possession in the presence of the children of Heath, before all that went in at the gate of his city. And after this, Abraham buried Sarah and his wife in the field of, of Mapalot before Mamre, the same as Hebron in the land of Canaan. And the field and the cave that is therein were made sure to Abraham for a possession of a burying place by the sons of Heath. Okay, so in uh, chapter 24, we're talking about how Isaac got married to uh, Rebekah. I'm only going to highlight a few parts here in this. Uh, Abraham was old and well stricken in age, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. So stricken, let's, let's look at that word stricken, because... When people, when people um, look at the word stricken, they usually think of somebody that's shaking and having Parkinson's disease. Well, I don't think that was the case with Abraham here. Uh, Genesis chapter 24. Let's look up that original word in the Hebrew to understand what it really means. Okay, well stricken. All right, let me look this up in the word word study dictionary here. Okay, I'm still trying to find what the meaning is here. Well stricken. 
Okay, well stricken, it means advanced in age. That, that's what I'm saying here, that it means that he was this old, that's all. It doesn't mean that he was shaken and getting ready to drop dead. It just said that he was old. He was He's very old. He's, he's lived a long time. That's what that's referring to. Okay. So getting back to... Let me look up the word in age. Okay, yeah, that that whole phrase, well stricken in age, means that he was very old. Okay, according to the standards of uh, of the times of living at that time. Okay, so in verse one, Abraham was old and well stricken. It even says that in the verse, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said to his eldest servant of his house that ruled over all that he had, put, I pray you, your hand under my thigh, and make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you shall not take a wife to my son of the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell, but you shall go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife to my son Isaac. And the servant said to him, Perhaps a woman would not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I needs bring your son again to the land from where you came? And Abraham said to him, Beware that you bring not my son there again. The reason why, because the Canaanites were, were pagans and they did not worship the true God. That's the reason why. So he's following the uh, instruction that God commands a believer to follow. Don't unequally yoke yourself with unbelievers. So anyway, uh, Genesis chapter 24, verse 7, The Lord God of heaven, which took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, and which spoke to me and has swore to me, saying, To your seed will I give this land. He shall send his angel before you. And you shall take a wife to my son from there. Now, this is an example because he he had uh, exercised faith, his servant, and his servant obeyed his master. <laughs> okay. And that's another thing I want you to understand here. He obeyed his master, and he did what his master told him to do. Now, you know, this this whole Torah portion here is, is really one to, to really analyze and study here and, and understand that in addition the servant, in addition to obeying his master, he also respected and obeyed God and had confidence and faith and trust in God. And so let's read the part where he uh, proves that he does have faith and confidence in God. So in verse 10, And his servant took ten camels of... Uh, in verse uh, 10 of uh, Genesis 24, And his servant took ten camels of the camels of his master and departed for all the goods of his master were in his hand and he rose and went to Mesopotamia to the city of Nahor and he made his camels to kneel down outside the city by a well of water at the time of the evening even the time that women go out to draw water and he said O Lord God of my master Abraham I pray you send me good speed this day and show kindness to my master Abraham now he's communicating this is how you can ask God uh, and I, I've done this quite a few times I just have a basic general conversation with God sometimes specific conversation. I said, hey, if, if this is your will, allow this to happen. If not, don't. And and he, he communicates, and he allows certain... That's how God communicates with man today. He doesn't come down and say, hey, I'm the almighty God. I mean, he will eventually, but not now. Uh, some things have to be cleaned up in this world. The way he communicates with you now is what he allows to happen and what he doesn't allow to happen. And this is an example here. 
All right, in verse 13, behold, now he's communicating with God here. Behold, in verse 13 of Genesis 24, I stand here by the well of water, and the daughters of the men of the city come out to draw water. And let it come to pass that the damsel to whom I shall say, let down your pitcher, I pray you that I may drink. And she shall say, drink, and I will give your camels drink. Also, let the same be she that you have appointed for your servant Isaac, and thereby shall I know that you have showed kindness in my mouth. Simple request. Verse 15, And it came to pass, before he had done speaking, before he had done speaking, that, behold, Rebekah came out, who was born in Bethlehem, son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, with her pitcher upon her shoulder. Verse 16, And the damsel was very fair to look upon, where she was beautiful. Neither had any man known her, in other words, she was a virgin. And she went down to the well and filled her pitcher and came up. And the servant ran to meet her and said, Let me, I pray you, drink a little water of your pitcher. Verse 18, And she said, Drink, my lord. And she hastened and let down her pitcher upon her hand and gave him a drink. So she was very submissive, very uh, willing to want to serve. And this is something that a woman and a man can follow. Example here, the the fact that Rebecca just was glad to help out. She was glad to serve, and that's the way we have to be if we call ourselves believers in Yeshua. Yeshua did so many things that it was... <laughs> As John stated in the last uh, paragraph of uh, the gospel that God inspired him to write, all the books in the world couldn't hold all the activities he did. The reason why is because Yeshua very seldom thought about himself. I mean, he thought about himself as far as loving himself, but he thought about other people as, as, as much as he thought about himself. And that's the reason why uh, all, there could be not, not enough books written about all the things he's done on the earth. Okay, because he cared about people. His life certainly wasn't boring. When you care about other people, when you serve other people, you get your mind off yourself, it's impossible for your life to be boring. Totally impossible. But when you start thinking about yourself, always me, what I want to do, yeah, you're going to be bored, guaranteed. Boring To be bored is a selfish emotion. To look up the word bore, or to be bored in, in, in the dictionary, and I, I did a Bible study on this. Boredom. Look up the word boredom here. To okay, bored means to weary with tedious dullness. And see, dullness is caused by just being lazy, not doing what you should be doing, and just wanting to be entertained and to have fun all day. That's what causes anyone to be bored. So anyway. Uh, verse 19, and when she had done giving him drink, she said, I will, and I see this is what I like about Rebecca here, and when she had done giving him drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels, in verse 19, also until they have done. So not only was it she was drawing water for him, but she was also drawing water for the camels. So this woman, and she hasted. She didn't just, you know, she wanted to do it. Verse 20, and she hastened and emptied her pitch into the trough and ran again to the well to draw the water, and drew for all his camels. And the man, wondering at her, held his peace, to know whether the Lord had made his journey prosperous or not. Verse 22, And it came to pass, as the camels had done drinking, that the man took a golden earring of half a shekel weight and two braces for her hands of ten shekels weight of gold. And she said, 
and he said, rather, Whose daughter are you? Tell me, I pray you, is there room in your father's house for us to lodge in? Verse 24 of Genesis 24. And she said to him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Melchah, which she bore to Nahor. She said moreover to him, We have both straw and provender enough and room to lodge in. And the man bowed down his head and worshipped the Lord. He knew that the Lord answered his prayer. And he said, Blessed be the Lord God of my master Abraham, who has not left destitute my master of his mercy and his truth. I being in the way, the Lord led me to the house of my master's brethren. So this is this is incredible here, and I just want to go to the part uh, where Isaac and Rebecca first met, which is pretty interesting. And in verse 61... She goes to meet Isaac, and Rebekah arose and her damsels, and they rode upon the camels and followed the man and the servant, took Rebekah and went his way. And Isaac came from the way of the well of Laharior, Laharior, for he dwelt in the south country. And Isaac went out to meditate or think in the field at the evening, and he lifted up his eyes and saw, and behold, the camels were coming. So, um, Based on the context here, obviously he was meditating or thinking about his uh, mother. You're going to see that here in a minute. Verse 64, And Rebekah lifted up her, her eyes, and when she saw Isaac, she dismounted the camel, off the camel, or lightened off the camel. Verse 65, And she had said to the servant, What man is this that walks in the field to meet us? And the servant had said, It is my master. Therefore she took a veil and covered herself. So she, out of respect, because she's the bridegroom, and not the bridegroom, but the bride, she covered herself. Verse 66, and the servant took Isaac all things that, or told Isaac all things he had done. Verse 67, and Isaac brought her into his mother Sarah's tent and took Rebekah, and she became his wife. Of course, she had sex, obviously. And he loved her, and Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. Okay, so marriage is when there is, uh, the marriage is uh, sealed when there's a sexual intercourse between a man and a woman. And I do talk about how someone finds a wife or how a wife finds a husband in, in, in Bible study. I do talk about that. And it's not done the way the world does it, that's for sure. Um, and I, I think I do explain I do explain in there that dating really is for adults. It's not for teenagers. Uh, and uh, dating should be done for marriage. And uh, the husband and the wife should have the future husband should visit the the parents of his future wife, and his future wife should visit the parents of her future husband, and both parents should be heavily involved in the decision-making process of whether or not these two individuals ought to get married, even though they could get married if they want, but they should follow their parents' advice if their parents are righteous and, and, and believers and, 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 and are, are giving them a sound advice. They should go by uh, what their parents tell them. And all the dating should be done out in the open. So no monkey business or sex uh, before marriage should be conducted. And uh, preferably uh, there should be group dating along with the parents. Uh, if there's parent, if there's dating one-on-one, that's fine as long as it's in a restaurant, uh, as long as it's out in the open. Uh, the uh, 
people that are engaged to each other. They should not be in the car by themselves. Uh, it should be totally uh, an innocent experience. Of course, when you get married, you can be in the car you want. You can have as much sex as you want, blah, blah, blah. You know, But before then, it should be kind of like a hands-off approach, other than maybe hugging, maybe a little kiss on the cheek or something like that. But it shouldn't be any French kissing or tongue kissing or whatever and all that that's going to stimulate the sexual process until um, you are officially married and uh, you, of course, after you're married, after it's announced publicly that you're married, then, of course, uh, you have as much sex as you want. So that's the way it's set up there. Although in this situation, um, it was public. Uh, Rebecca's family knew that She's going to get married, and and uh, of course um, Isaac knew once the servant knew, and, and so forth. So it was kind of like uh, this is an example of God just <laughs> laying everything out and planning everything for you for that. So that's a Jewish tradition, and it's a biblical tradition because Yeshua did attend a wedding. So if he was against it. Why would he attend it? You know, God wouldn't have nothing to do with something that he doesn't approve of. So so definitely there's nothing wrong with making a public announcement, a, a visual announcement that you're going to get married to someone. Okay, anyway, I do have a Bible study in the archives about that, so if you're interested in listening to that or if you have any other questions about the proper way to prepare for marriage, please email me. I can give you some study materials on that. All right, I have 14 minutes left. Let's... Um, take a look at uh, 1 Kings chapter 1. First Kings chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Now, King David was old and stricken in years, and they covered him with clothes, but he got no heat. So he had a problem with heat here. He, he just had a problem with blood circulation, obviously. Wherefore, his servant said to him, let there be sought for my lord the king, a young virgin, and let her stand before the king, and let her attend him, and let her lie in your bosom or chest, that my lord may get heat. Verse 3. So they sought for a fair damsel throughout all the coasts of Israel, and found Abishag, a Shunammite, and brought her to the king. And the damsel was very fair, so she was good looking, and cherished the king, or nursed the king. And ministered to him, but the king knew her not. In other words, King David learned his lesson from Bathsheba, obviously. He didn't have no sex with her. So he must have been really, really spiritually strong to resist this woman. Okay? But the woman was there for medical purposes, and God understood that. And and so, obviously, everyone else. Then, um, Ad, um, Adonijai, Adonijai, the son of Haggadith, exalted himself, saying, I will be king. And he prepared him chariots and horsemen and fifty men to run before him. And his father had not displeased him at any time in saying, Why have you done so? And he also was a very goodly man, and his mother bore him after Absalom. So, you know, David did not do a good job here and being the kind of father he should have been to his children. Verse 7, And he conferred with Joab the son of Zuriah and Abathar and the priests, and they followed Adonijah. And they and they following Adonijah, Adonijah, Ad 
Anuja, for these biblical words, Ad Anuja. So they filing Ad Anuja helped him. But Zadok, the priest, and Benaiha, the son of Joiada, and Nathan, the prophet, and Shemiel, and Rahi, and the mighty men which belonged to David were not with Ad Anuja. And Ad Anuja slew sheep and oxen and fat cattle by the stone, stone of Zohaleth, which is by Enrogel, and called all his brethren the king's sons and all the men of Judah the king's servants. But Nathan the prophet and Benaha and the mighty men and Solomon his brother he called not. Wherefore Nathan spoke to Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon, saying, Have you not heard that at Onajah, the son of Haggith, does reign, and David our Lord knows it not? And again, what did verse 6 say of the first kings? This is a lesson for fathers here, so listen up. And his father had not displeased him at any time in saying, Why have you done so? And he also was a very goodly man, and his mother bore him after Absalom. So it's in verse 5 it says, Then Adonijah, the son of Haggith, exalted himself. So here we go. When you exalt yourself, you'll be knocked down. And that's what he did, saying, I will be king. And he prepared him chariots and horsemen and 50 men to run after him. Then his father didn't discipline him. So fathers, again, our job, I don't care what age your son is, if you see your son going off track, you must tell them that they're wrong. Now, it's up to them whether they're going to obey you or not. But your responsibility is to tell them when they go off track. And because David failed to do this, he caused some hell for himself, as you're going to see here. All right, um, verse 10, But Nathan the prophet and Beniah and the mighty men of Solomon's brother he called not. Wherefore Nathan spoke to Bathsheba the mother of Solomon, saying, Have you not heard that Adonijah, the son of Haggith, does reign in David our Lord, knows it not? Verse 12, Now therefore come, let me. I pray you give you counsel that you may save your own life and the life of your son, your son Solomon. Go and get you into King David and say to him, Did not you, my lord, O king, swear to your handmaid, saying, Assuredly, Solomon, your son, shall reign after me, and he shall sit upon my throne. Why then does Adonijah reign? Which is a good question. Verse 14. Behold, while you... Yet talk there with the king, I also come in after you and confirm your words. And Bathsheba went in to the king into the chamber, and the king was very old, and Abishag the, the Shunammite ministered to the king. So that was the, the, the beautiful woman that had heat, obviously, and she warmed him up. Verse 16, And Bathsheba bowed and did obstinance to the king, and the king said, What would you, or what do you wish? Verse 17, and she said to him, My Lord, you swore by the Lord your God to your handmaid, saying, Surely Solomon your son shall reign after me, and he shall sit upon my throne. And now behold, at Onajai reigns, and now, my Lord the king, you know it not. Verse 19, And he has slain oxen and fat cattle and sheep in abundance, and has called all the sons of the king, and Abavar the priest, and Joab the captain of the host. But Solomon your servant has, has he not called. And you, my lord, O king, the eyes of all Israel upon you, that you should tell them who shall sit on the throne of my lord the king after him. Verse 21, Otherwise it shall come to pass when my lord the king shall sleep with his fathers, that I and my son Solomon shall be counted offenders. And lo, while she yet talked with the king, Nathan the prophet also came in, 
And they told the king, saying, Behold, Nathan the prophet. And when he was come in before the king, he bowed himself before the king with his face to the ground. I want you to notice something here. There's nothing said in the scriptures that it was wrong for them to bow to the king. And when they bowed to the king, they were given. See, the king represented God. Okay, King David represented God's presence. And so to give God the respect, not so much David, God, they kneeled to him. And I don't see anywhere in the Bible where it says that's something wrong to do here. Okay? So anyway, um, verse 23, verse 24, And Nathan said, My lord, O king, have you said, Ad-Najah shall reign after me, and he shall sit upon my throne? For he has gone down this day, and has slain oxen and fat cattle and sheep in abundance, and has called all the king's son and the captains of the host. And Abathar the priest, and behold, they eat and drink before him, and say, God save king Adonijai, Adonijai. <laughs> and this is what the British do each time they, they have an opportunity to to uh, issue in a new queen or king. They do say, God save the king. This is where they got this from, which proves again that the British are linked with uh, the tribes of Israel. But anyway, verse 26, but me, even me, your servant, and Zadok the priest, and Benai, the son of Jehoiada, and your servant Solomon, has he not called? Is this thing done by my lord the king, and you have not showed it to your servant who should sit on the throne of my lord the king after him? Then King David answered and said, Call me Bathsheba. And she came into the king's presence and stood before the king. And the king swore and said, As the Lord lives, that has redeemed my soul out of all distress, even as I swore to you by the Lord God of Israel, saying, Assuredly, Solomon, your son, shall reign after me. And he shall sit upon my throne in my stead. Even so will I certainly do this day. Then Bathsheba bowed with her face to the earth and did reverence to the king and said, Let my lord king David live forever. And this is out of respect to God. This is the tradition that they did. So this was straightened out. And um, eventually Solomon became king. But again, in verse 6 of first book of kings uh it shows you the heir of david and this would not have been necessary if david was actively involved in uh ad energize ad energize life so uh because of that in verse 6 it says and his father had not displeased him at any time and saying why have you done so he was also a very goodly man and his mother bore him after absalom so Obviously, there was a, a lack of involvement in uh, David, David's relationship with uh, Adonijah. So anyway, let's go to our last scripture here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. In the remaining five minutes that I have here. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting in verse uh, 50. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, neither does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O grave, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, 
and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So this is just telling us that even though we've uh, experienced the death of Sarah and uh, burials and so forth, that we know. We know in the future. And then we read a story about King David being stricken, uh, being old age, obviously getting ready to die. Uh, we know that uh, if we hold on to God and we obey him, that things will get better for us and we will be in his kingdom. So that's, that's the important thing for us to understand and to realize. So that is the uh, the Torah portions uh, for this week. And um, the, the Torah portions for next week is the following. Take a pencil and write this down, and uh, you should, you know, when you have the time, uh, go over these Torah portions uh, to really study them and uh, take it to heart. Uh, the Torah portion for next week is Genesis chapter 25, verses 19 to Genesis chapter 28, verse 9. Genesis chapter 25, Genesis chapter 25, verses 19 to chapter 28, verse 9. And then the Haftarah of the Prophets part is Malachi chapter 1 to Malachi chapter 2, verse 7. So Malachi chapter 1, the Prophets part or the Haftarah part, Malachi chapter 1 to Malachi chapter 2, verse 7, and the Brit Tadashah, or the uh, Renewed Covenant, or Apostolic Scriptures of the New Testament, Romans chapter 9, verses 6 to 13. That's Romans chapter 9, verses uh, 6 to 13. So let me go over this again. The um, first part is Genesis, called a Torah part, Genesis chapter 25, starting in verse 19 to Genesis chapter 28, verse 9. The Haftarah part is Malachi chapter 1, starting in verse 1 to Malachi chapter 2, verse 7. And in the Brit Tadasha, or the uh, Renewed Covenant, Romans chapter 9, starting in verse 6 to 13. And the remaining time I have left, well, one minute, <laughs> the Middle East. So they're still trying to see if they can work out a, a peace agreement. So what you need to do is keep an eye on what's going on in Jerusalem. We ought to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. And uh, it's, it's the, it should be the, the place where we have great joy. And we need to focus on Jerusalem because that's where God is going to live at. That's where the saints and, and the angels will be living at in the future. So with that, may God bless and keep you. And God willing, I will speak to you next week. Malachi chapter 4. For behold, the day cometh that shall burn as an oven, and all the proud, yea, and all that do wickedly shall be stubble. And the day that cometh shall burn them up, saith the Lord of hosts, that it shall leave them neither root nor branch. But unto you that fear my name shall the Son of Righteousness arise with healing in his wings, and ye shall go forth and grow up as calves of the stall. And ye shall tread down the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet in the day that I shall do this, saith the Lord of hosts. Remember ye the law of Moses my servant, 
which I commanded unto him in Horeb for all Israel, with the statutes and judgments. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children, and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. <laughs> 